to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka here with Professor Akil Amar. Hello, Akil. Hello, Andy. Our shirts match today, although the audience may or may not know that. Yes, that's true. Not by design. Our last two episodes uh, involved great guests discussing their article on the 14th Amendment, Section 3. And we thought we would follow up on that with a discussion of some of the implications of that article. So, you know, we briefly touched on the the idea of, well, how is this all these things going to apply to Donald Trump? We're starting to see that unfold in the news with various lawsuits or administrative proceedings or people saying, yes, he can be disqualified. People saying, no, he can't be disqualified. And of course, over and over again, they refer to the article by professors Paulson and Bode, which we've which we discussed with them. And even in the three hours of podcasts that we've aired with them, we still didn't get into, okay, let's say that there is an, uh, some proceeding against Donald Trump, whether it's a secretary of state deciding that he should be on the ballot or not. And so what are the arguments going to be that he should be on the, on the ballot? And what are they going to be that he shouldn't be on the ballot? And, then what's going to be the back and forth of those arguments? And finally, what are the arguments going to turn on? So what is what are kind of the, the subtle points of law and fact that will be up in the air and that the decision will, if done properly, um, ultimately turn on? And that's something that we want to discuss at some point. Um, but obviously, that's quite an involved discussion. And maybe it's best done when there actually is a proceeding before us and we can see what the arguments are that are being made and we can address them. Or maybe we can tee up some of these arguments also and, uh, and then as the arguments are made, we can sort of see how they correspond to what we predicted. So that's something that we're going to do um, in the near future. Uh, but it's going to, and we were going to do it today, but it's, it's clearly a big, a big topic. It's a big, and... Um, you know, life gets in the way sometimes, and things are happening in the news, some of which are relevant to this case, uh, to this to this issue. I think the immediacy of these other issues, the fact that people are discussing them right now, they're in the news, um, requires that we take them up. Just so we know what we're going to hold in the base and come back to it sooner rather than later, before maybe even a, an adjudication begins or, or some official proceeding. But we're going to talk, as we as we mentioned before, about what exactly is the lower bound of an insurrection on our view? And I haven't fully figured all these things out, but in conversation with you, I bet my position will be clarified in yours too, as often happens when we talk. What's an insurrection? What it means to give aid or comfort to an insurrection? Does that require an affirmative action or not? So those are some of the things that we definitely are going to talk about. But there's yet another issue, an issue of law. Is the president covered by 14th Amendment Section 3? Will and Mike and you and I kind of all assumed, of course, but just recently, that issue has been, and, and they and they discuss it in their piece. Yeah, they do. Um, but we didn't do discuss it at great length because you know they had me at hello, but they don't have everyone at hello. And so, just in the last several days, an important statement has been published in a prominent place by an important person that I think we need to address, and that's the question of whether the president is even covered by Fourteenth Amendment Section Three. Yes. 
Um, or yeah, to put it another way, the, the title of the article um, was the article was written by Michael Mukasey, former Attorney General of the United States under President Bush, um, and in the Wall Street Journal, uh, he writes an op-ed entitled "Was Trump an Officer of the United States?" and this appeared on September seventh, and we'll we'll post it to the. Uh, to, the, to our website. Important author with important credentials and one of the three or four most significant media out national media outlets making a really important and indeed, if correct, dispositive claim. The claim being made in this piece is that Trump is not covered. No president is covered by 14th Amendment, Section 3. It covers all sorts of other folks, but according to uh, former General Mukasey, not the President of the United States. Yes, and you did we did mention this in the last uh, episode briefly to uh, some, not the article, but the concept, you know, to some ridicule. But anyway, we'll... Uh, right, I said, oh, gee, you know, it applies, you can't be a presidential elector, you know, but some people would think you can be president if you if you violated your solemn oath. There are two different issues addressed. One, whether 14th Amendment Section 3 even applies to oaths taken by presidents as opposed to oaths to support the Constitution taken by cabinet officers um, or uh, senators or representatives. So one question is, is is the presidential oath even covered by 14th Amendment Section 3? And then the second is, are the disqualification provisions of the 14th Amendment, Section 3, applicable to the presidency as opposed to being disqualified to be a senator or representative or presidential elector or what have you? And yes, Andy, you're right. I kind of ridiculed that just in brief, and briefly saying, like, really, could someone say because of something that you did, you're ineligible to be a presidential elector, but heck, you can be president. You're ineligible to be a member of the House or the Senate or a cabinet officer, but heck, you can be president. Or that the clause is addressed to oath-breaking if you were a cabinet officer or a senator or a representative, but it wouldn't apply to an oath if you took the oath to support the Constitution as a president. Yeah, so just very very quickly, then I think to paraphrase what, what, what you're saying, what Mukasey is saying here, he, in terms of what the question is, he's he's really asking in this article um, whether the Fourteenth Amendment, Section Three, which a lot which disqualifies certain people from uh, holding office, applies to the president. And there are two ways that he says it might not apply to the president. One is that the presidency itself is not an office under the United States. And the other is that the oath, the presidential oath, is not an oath to support the Constitution as an officer of the United States. So both of those things <laughs> turn on whether or not the presidency is an office. Right? Yes. And I was it's, laughing because I actually I, I couldn't resist because to even hear these formulations elicits laughter from me. Well, that uh, laughter can't help but remind me that our good friend, the comedian John Mulaney, is an avid listener to our podcast. And you and I, I guess mostly you, uh, did a fantastic uh, semi-private event with him uh, back in January. So a shout out to John if he's uh, listening as usual. Okay, so you know how how Akil's going to come out on this. 
but nevertheless, it's it's worth you know going through it, and we are going to go through it. So let's so we've teed that up for you, and we're gonna we're gonna talk about that today. The other thing that we're going to talk about today, actually, there are two other things, but they're they're somewhat related, although they might not seem so um, at first. Um, one has to do with what's going on in Wisconsin, where there's been a move to possibly impeach and remove from office and or remove from office, I guess I should say, a uh, judge who was elected recently to the Wisconsin Supreme Court. And the other, so we're going to discuss that, the basis for the removal, the strategy behind the removal, the question of impeachment versus removal, and what might be done in response. So there's some political aspects to this, like, you know, What's the give and take? Why is it being done? You know, what might what might be the response? But there's also kind of a fundamental constitutional law question or constitutional ecosphere question about judges and voicing of their opinions in in various contexts. I think when we put it that way, you can see how this is somewhat related to the other thing I'm going to talk about, which is that so Justice Alito is in the news again as well, because um, there's a case coming up, uh, another Moore case, by the way, um, but this is not Moore versus Harper. More, more, yes, more, 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 more. We have more, more, which is a pun that we've overused in the titles of this of various podcasts. But anyway, um, so this case is a tax case that's coming up, interesting case. And Justice Alito recently gave an interview to a reporter, and that reporter is also an attorney for one of the parties in this case. So the question is, should he recuse himself? And he's said that he won't. So um, we're going to discuss that. And uh, so these things, as you, you, you could sort of get an intuition that they're somewhat related. Right. And I'm going to try to pull everything together to give folks a sneak preview. I will defend both the justice, uh, the state Supreme Court justice who was under attack in Wisconsin, who said various things about gerrymandering in Wisconsin and um, is unlikely to recuse herself in a pen in a case about gerrymandering in Wisconsin. And that's the basis for uh, moves afoot to impeach her, suspend her, remove her, um, because she said certain things and she's not going to disqualify herself. It, it appears not going to recuse herself. I'm going to be defending her. And I'm going to actually be defending Justice Alito because I think he's in a somewhat similar position. He said certain things. People are saying, because you said certain things, you have to recuse. And I'm saying, no, I don't think he has to recuse. And I don't think she has to recuse. And those, and interestingly, those are actually rather similar issues. One in the state judicial system, one in the federal judicial system. So those, and just the world has happily just thrown before us in the same week, these two cases, one involving a conservative Republican on the federal bench, the highest court of the federal system, one involving a liberal Democrat on the highest bench of a state system. And and there's similar issues. Even more than that, Andy, of course, the biggest issue of all is the 2024 election and whether Donald Trump is eligible and whether he could win. Now, the Mukasey essay is about his eligibility and whether he's disqualified. The Wisconsin case is about whether he could win, because as our audience knows, we have have had several episodes about the Electoral College. And our audience knows that I believe the pivotal state is 
Wisconsin. It's the, the, the state that, um, as Wisconsin goes, most likely so goes the nation in the Electoral College. There are a bunch of states to its left, like Michigan and Pennsylvania, where the Democrats are likely to do a little bit better. There are a bunch of cases to its right, like Arizona and Georgia. It's actually, I think, the pivotal case, uh, the, the pivotal state on Nate Silver's snake. And our audience knows that the justices on the the Wisconsin Supreme Court were balanced three to three. And this new justice, who's a Democrat, would, would make it four to three. And this is important, therefore, not just for abortion issues in Wisconsin. Oh, and we've had all sorts of discussions about Dobbs and all the rest. But the presidential election, if Trump is on the ballot or if not, may well be decided in Wisconsin. And there may be issues about that that will be decided by the Wisconsin Supreme court under the Moore versus Harper decision, because there may be state constitutional issues about who can vote and how. And those are going to be decided ultimately by the Wisconsin Supreme Court. And the Wisconsin Supreme Court is now four to three. And we had teed up those issues, Andy, in previous episodes, saying pay particular attention to the Wisconsin Supreme Court, not just for abortion reasons, but for independent state legislature reasons. So, oh, my gosh, it's all coming together. And if our our faithful audience will know, we have had our eyes on this for the longest time. Pay attention to Wisconsin in particular. And because of I, um, the repudiation of ISL to Wisconsin Constitution, as it's likely to be construed by the Wisconsin Supreme Court. And this is the, the pivotal justice on the Wisconsin Supreme Court, the swing justice. Yeah, now, it's not this is not to say that that uh, let's say it's Biden versus Trump for argument's sake in the election. Um, uh, this is not to say that you could, that Biden would, could not win the election if he loses Wisconsin. He could win Arizona or Georgia, or, but it is kind of in the middle of the snake. In other words, Georgia and, and Arizona are probably a little bit to the right of Wisconsin in terms of the, the statewide electorate. Um, right. So- and you don't need, you only need to win in effect one of those. And the one that the Democrat is most likely to win based on past track record is Wisconsin. Put another way, Wisconsin has a Democratic governor. Georgia has two Democratic senators, to be sure. Arizona has a one Democratic senator and now a Democratic governor, to be sure. But Wisconsin is a little, leans a little historically a little bit more blue than Georgia and Arizona. And the most recent statewide election that would demonstrate that would be the election of this justice. Exactly uh, so. The justice that was elected to the Wisconsin Supreme Court, Janet Protasewicz. Um, we're going to refer to her as Justice P, I think, because otherwise I'm going to make some embarrassing mispronunciations um, as the various takes that uh, one take Bartlett did not uh, prevail <laughs> during this <laughs> podcast recording. But so just so with apologies, we'll, we'll refer to her as Justice P. Um, anyway, she won handily in the in the election. And now, of course, abortion was a big issue in this election. Who knows if this will, if the, you know, dynamics of the election in 2024 will be the same. But nevertheless, you know, that certainly points to a somewhat blue trend in the state statewide. And Andy, just again, to connect it to, because we, we have almost three years worth of podcast episodes. My prediction as a political scientist had been that the overruling of Roe might actually very well help Democrats in state after state. My view as a constitutional scholar was that 
Roe and is that Roe was problematic, but and that should be at least Roe should be repudiated. There were other possible theories. That's what I thought as a constitutional scholar, but as a political scientist, I thought this might actually help my party going forward. So I've been focused on Wisconsin. We in this podcast have been focused on Wisconsin, both on the Dobbs Roe abortion issue, women's reproductive rights issue, and on the electoral college issue. And there are other themes of our podcast that have that are echoing here because you have this blue justice being elected and you have a, a governor that's a Democrat, but the legislature is heavily red. They're upset because this justice has made various statements that indicate that she believes that there's significant gerrymandering going on, perhaps unconstitutional under the Wisconsin state constitution. And there's going to be a legal challenge before the, before the Wisconsin Supreme Court to the maps that have been drafted by the state legislature. So we have issues here of entrenchment, you know, that we've discussed kind of John Hart Ely things where the legislature is passing laws entrenching the legislative majority. And so this is coming up before the court. So and, and what's going on to try to where the court might be obstructed in its in its ruling? Well, the idea here is that the legislature is moving towards possibly impeaching this justice precisely because of how she might rule in a case that entrenches the legislature. So this is like sort of an entrenchment 2.0 here where you're not only passing maps that tend to entrench you, but you're also trying to fiddle with the the, uh, judiciary. The governor's elected statewide and it's a Democrat, uh, Tony Evers. And she was elected statewide and she's a Democrat. The legislators are elected by districts and that tends to favor Republicans for reasons that we talked about having to do with geographic clustering. We have past episodes on, on that. But just also to remind our audience just how close Wisconsin is, Ron Johnson elected statewide one re-election to the U.S. Senate against Mandela Barnes. So Wisconsin has one Republican senator, Ron Johnson, and one Democratic senator, Tammy Baldwin. There are not very many states, actually, that are split that way. In West Virginia, but Joe Manchin is is really a, a kind of Republican and, and Democrats. Very few. Um, I think there's six, maybe, uh, or five. Ohio, Montana, most states are Blue, 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 governors uh, and two senators, or red, 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 governor and two senators. Georgia is different, two blue senators and a red governor. Arizona is interesting, but you see how close Wisconsin is. So what actually is going on here? So they, they're saying, well, we're going to impeach her. Well, why? I mean, maybe because of her actions in various cases that she's heard? Well, actually not, because she hasn't sat for a case yet. Um, basically, what she's done is taken the oath of office, and uh, and that's that. Now, they're saying that she should be impeached because of comments that she's made. In a debate last year, when she was running for the office, she said that she considered the legislative map and the legislative elective process in Wisconsin to be rigged. This was the Democratic strategy, in part, was to you know call attention to this and basically run on that. And later, the, there were complaints that were made against her saying that she, this is a quote out of an article in the New York Times, that she had violated the state's judicial code of ethics by stating her personal views about abortion and also Wisconsin's legislative maps. She released last week 
uh, a letter from the Wisconsin Judicial Commission that dismissed those complaints. So she's, you know, was found essentially not guilty of those uh, ethical complaints. As far as this particular case that's coming up before the court, she has said nothing. She's made no comments about these, the particular case. Nevertheless, the Republicans are saying that she should be impeached for having made these comments either before she was elected or, or, or after. I think that they're talking about comments that she made before, but which, which is problematic. But let's assume for the sake of argument that she made these comments after she was elected, but before this case was filed. So, Akhil, do you consider this to be legitimate grounds for impeaching uh, a justice that they've made comments on an issue that might come before the court as opposed to a specific case? No, let's let's actually work our way through kind of very carefully, because you could say the problem is she said something on the campaign trail. Or you could say the problem is she said something as a sitting justice. Or you could say the problem is she didn't recuse herself in the case when it arose. Those are three different things. Let's actually work our way through them very carefully because that's what we do on this podcast. Saying stuff on the campaign trail. Here's what she didn't say. She didn't say, I promise to vote a certain way. And if she did, I think that would have been inappropriate, even if she didn't actually carry out her promise. Merely the offering of a promise, it seems to me, is improper because it's inconsistent with judicial independence in the moment, which is you have to be able, when the case actually reaches you, to decide it on the merits as you, at that moment, think is the correct decision. So even if you never carry out your promise, you should never have made that promise. That's improper. That's true whether you're running for office or whether you're appointed to office. So if in a confirmation process, a judge or justice offered a would-be judge or justice, um, a nominee said, I promise I will do this or that or the other thing, or I won't do this or that or the other thing, I won't overrule Roe versus Wade, or I will overrule Roe versus Wade, that to me would be a huge problem. Is no, are all promises of every conceivable sort improper? No. I could imagine saying, I promise I will work hard. I promise I will be faithful to my office. I promise even before I've taken the oath that I will support the Constitution of the United States. I promise to abide by norms of judicial ethics, even if they're not statutorily required of me. If I'm a nominee to the United States Supreme Court currently and there's no federal statute that applies, I I promise I will voluntarily abide by various norms of legal ethics. Those things seem to me to be not improper promises. They kind of go to you know, the very nature of the job. I promise to be independent as opposed to I promise to vote a certain way on a certain case or a certain issue when that case or issue arises. Those would be improper, it seems to me. Okay, but telling people my general views about the law, whether it's an appointed position, I say the federal judicial system or an elected one, doesn't seem to be wrong. So, in fact, Vic and I have written forever that in the confirmation hearings, justice uh, would be justices should actually say what their uh, current opinions of the laws. Here's what I think of Brown versus Board of Education or Roe versus Wade or Bush versus Gore. I could change my mind after confirmation if I hear new arguments see, and see new evidence. But it's not 
improper in general to just say what your views are. And in fact, justices, sitting justices, judges, sitting judges all the time rule on cases. And then similar issues arise on remand or in later cases. And they don't it wasn't improper that they took a position and now they're having a legal issue. And now they're going to hear a case again. Some justices have views on affirmative action that, that they had articulated many years ago that didn't require them to recuse themselves in the most recent affirmative action case. And just as there's nothing improper for a judge In a case telling you his or her view of the law, I think there's nothing improper for someone who wants to be a judge or a state justice telling you their views of the law, whether you as the Senate or you as the electorate. If you're saying all this when you're running for office, I'm saying like that's the whole point of the election that's built into the cake. And you and I talked about how you ran for a certain position. And it would be really weird if you can run, but you can't say anything at all on anything of, of substance that matters. So, so Andy, you know, you're smiling now, but you and I talked offline about this. No, it's true. I had decided to run for a petition candidacy for the Yale Corporation, which is the governing body of Yale University. And it used to be that alumni could gather signatures of supporters, required close to 5,000 signatures. But if you did it, you would be a candidate on the ballot for an election for trustee of the, of the Yale Corporation. But the way the election is run, if you're not a petition candidate, you're, then you get nominated by this committee of alumni and others. And you're not allowed to make any statements about any issue if you run that way. Um, the, the only thing that, that people have to go on is a biography of you, which you don't even get to prepare. It's prepared by this committee. So they just say some facts about you and you're not allowed to sit for an interview with the Yale Daily News or anything else. And, you know, this is absurd that you're not allowed to provide the electorate with a basis upon which to choose you or not. So uh, I I can identify with that. Giggling. um, But here's uh, here are a couple of refinements uh, in this first scenario, which is when you're seeking the office. Here's one refinement. Certain offices permit not, not just statements, promises. Read my lips. No new taxes candidate. George Herbert Walker Bush said that at the Republican National Convention. That's a promise. You're allowed to make promises for legislative and executive positions. Uh, That's not inconsistent with our understanding of um, the, the position you seek. You're allowed to say, I will raise your taxes. I will lower your taxes. I will build a wall. I will tear down a wall. Um, and so for many positions, you're actually allowed to make promises. My view is you can't for a judicial position because there's a certain set of norms that are, we call judicial independence that are generally inconsistent with certain kinds of promises that you're going to rule a certain way on a certain issue or for certain parties. So promises, it seems to me, are generally permissible, but not uh, of a certain sort for judges. Second point, big point, what's the whole point of the election. It seems to me that a point of election is in part to give the electorate choices and not just of people, but sometimes of platforms or of at least visions. Wisconsin has a system where it's baked into the cake, it seems to me. It's it's part of the structure. It's a feature 
and not a bug that candidates are permitted to explain their general views of the law. That's my interpretation of the spirit of the rules of judicial selection in Wisconsin. Andy, you and I have talked about this before. There's always a nice question. There's a rule. There's always a nice question about, well, what's the spirit behind the rule? And are certain aspects of the rule, are they bugs that you wish they didn't, we didn't have them? It's a bug that you can actually get away with murder if you're able to fool one out of 12 jurors or something. That, that's a bug. It's not a feature, perhaps. What's a bug and what's a feature? And I'm saying candidates for judicial office telling us their vision of the judiciary and of the law that's not a bug. That's a feature that shouldn't be a basis for um, an, an ethics charge brought against or an impeachment against um, a would-be candidate. I mean, in fact, some states, you know, justices are appointed and others they're elected. Wisconsin has chosen to elect their judges. And by making that choice, one would think that they're trying to you know, have the you know, have the electorate make choices. Otherwise, right. they would just again. You could think it's only them. about name, rank, and serial number. Here's my name. My name is Justice P. <laughs> and and here are my credentials. I went to this law school. This was my practice experience. Um, I, I did this sorts these sorts of cases. Here's what I've done in the profession. Name, rank, and serial number. But don't ask me what I think about anything. Right. That's you, the that, sort of choice that would be made by a committee. Like, you know, if you're just reviewing the credentials, that's the kind of choice that the electorate is not really going to want to get involved with. It's, you know, uh, as opposed to because a committee can do that. Um, The electorate is making choices about who they want on the bench. And presumably, I mean, it's foolish to think that, you know, judicial philosophy and approach and position on issues is, is something the electorate doesn't care about. I mean, we and, see- and just just as you said, it, it's kind of odd to think that the alums who get to vote for people in the Yale Corporation care only about whether you graduated, you know, cum or magna or summa or, or where you went to school or whether you're a Yale parent or not, which are important factors. I, I think they're important, but but nothing about your your vision of Yale or higher education mm-hmm. or anything else. Right. It's it's absurd. Well, it's, you know, it is an election. You're making an, a selection in the election. But anyway, so that was the first. First thing, I think that statements made on, as it were, the campaign trail that aren't promises are perfect. This is my view of the law. I think malpractice, punitive damages are out of control. Yes, you're allowed to have views and articulate them. Now, once you're a uh, once you've won the election, you've been sworn in. Should you be mouthing off that way? Here, I'm not as sure that that, that's as appropriate because it's not in connection with a process that has been set up for. um, And so why are you mouthing off? There are rules of ethics that kick in. You're allowed, often encouraged to talk about certain things, about the judiciary itself, for example. But if you're talking about all sorts of stuff beyond that, especially about things that might come before you as a state Supreme Court justice, The rules of ethics generally discourage you from mouthing off. And there's no counterbalancing consideration here. Well, this is, you know, in anticipation, this is, you know, part of the the election process or something. Now, you could say, oh, Akil, I live in a state where there's not just initial election, but there are retention 
elections afterwards. And so I'm always on the campaign trail, so to speak. And why shouldn't I be allowed to do that? And and that would be counter. But it is arguably slightly different once you've become a justice. Right. Um, But in this case, in this case, to be clear, uh, there haven't been allegations that I'm aware of anyway of comments that she's made inappropriate comments since being sworn in, which was only a few weeks ago. In fact, she said nothing on this. Um, What she hasn't done is she hasn't recused herself from this case. So there, right. and that was the third. That's the third thing that I was going to talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a case out of West Virginia. It's called Caperton. There was a very uh, wealthy corporation, and the main shareholder of it, a coal company, gave a lot of money to a candidate running for the Supreme Court of West Virginia, and the court didn't say that the person couldn't run didn't say that the person couldn't take a bunch of money, which was permitted under the campaign finance rules at the time, but did say if you're going to run and you're going to take a lot of money from this corporation and or its major shareholder, you may be obliged under the due process clause to recuse yourself in a case involving that company or that major shareholder because your judicial impartiality could fairly be called into question because you got so much money when you were on the campaign trail from the company and or a shareholder. I, I'm, I'm blocking on just the, the specific details of the thing, but there was nothing wrong with running, nothing wrong with taking money, but there might be an obligation of recusal in a certain situation. And, and her critics, Justice P's critics are saying, Having said that you think that these certain election maps are rigged, you have to recuse in a case that involves those election maps. And I actually don't think so. I don't think that she has an unalterably closed mind. I think she um, there's no reason to believe that she's impervious to the evidence. If you thought that having once said an election was rigged, you could never hear an election case, and, and this is not about some financial impropriety or you know being in the pay of one party or the other, something like that. You're not beholden. Justice is still blind. You have a view on the merits. If you heard the first election case and you thought it was rigged and you ruled against the legislature, and then they came back and came up with a new map or something like that, you don't have to accuse yourself. It happens every day of the week. Judges make rulings. Things happen and the case comes before them or similar cases come before them and they have a view of the law. Justice Sotomayor has views on all sorts of issues um, predictably and Justice Thomas has views on on those very same issues predictably. And we could predict, you know, even before they open their mouths, I predicted Justice Thomas is going to be harder vote for me to get in Moore versus Harper, you know, in the amicus brief that you helped me on with Vic and Steve. And I thought I probably had Justice Sotomayor at hello. That was just my hunch going into the thing, you see, based on their general views of the law in other cases. Yeah, I mean, I think that if anything, you, you, you know, you have a, a justice sitting on a court, they write an opinion on a particular matter. They go into, you know, very fine-grained detail. It's not just a matter of saying, oh, this is rigged, uh, you know, I don't like it, or something like that. They've actually pinned themselves down in many, many ways, which, of course, they're they're free to change their minds in the future, um, but you probably have a pretty good idea, a, a much better idea, frankly, of how they're going to rule than just based on some some comments on the campaign trail. Now, I think that the if you're going to complain about com- about a justice having, you know, a position. I think you you made the point earlier. Well, you know, if 
if the, you're beholden in some way to one of the parties. party. Right. Yes. And financially so, that's a totally different issue. Yes. But on, going back to Moore versus Harper, I think um, on the podcast, definitely offline, Andy, I think I told you Justice Thomas would be a harder vote to get because he actually wrote and joined an opinion in Bush versus Gore. He would have to change his mind on ISL. And and I still thought I could get his vote. Mm-hmm. I, I ended up not getting his vote, but I thought I could because I respect him. And I didn't think that his mind was unalterably closed. And I know he's changed his mind in other areas of the law where he ruled one way and then he, new evidence, new arguments came before him. And he actually said, now I see things differently. I've seen that about him. And it's, it's a harder thing psychologically to happen on Moore versus Harper. John Roberts was a lawyer on Bush's side in Bush versus Gore. And so was Brett Kavanaugh. And so was Amy Coney Barrett. And all three, you know, voted basically to cabin Bush versus Gore in pretty dramatic ways. So it's not improper for a judge or justice to sit on a case where they have some familiarity with the issues and have even taken positions on some of those issues as lawyers or as judges or as candidates. That in and of itself is not actually a basis for recusal. And just again, go back to Moore versus Harper. People did kind of shift their positions in certain ways and good for them and others didn't. And and that's permissible too. I mean, I think to put it another way, suppose that the ju- this ju- Judge P hadn't made made these comments during the campaign. She she would still have the same opinion that she has. You know, yeah. she has an opinion. Yeah. Um, so, and here's and what she didn't do. She didn't make a promise that, that would have been a problem. Right. I mean, she and she she took an oath, you know, to that involved. I, mean, I don't know the, the, the wording of the oath, but I'm sure it's something to the effect that she'll hear the cases, you know, in, a, in an impartial way. And and there's right. no evidence that she hasn't done that. that well, she hasn't heard right. any cases. But okay, right. so now let's say. And by the way, I, I know we're going to flash forward. I'm going to have the same position on Justice Alito. You see, and and this is not just both sidesism or something for its own sake. It's because I actually think the issues with Justice Alito are remarkably very similar. And how many people out there in the real world are going to actually have the same position on Justice Alito as they do for Justice Pete? But but I I do. But before we get to Justice Alito, let's just, you know, take this through. Um, so we we believe that there isn't really a basis for this impeachment. But suppose they do go ahead and impeach her, which is to say that they bring, you know, essentially charges against her that they will then be the, that the, the Wisconsin legislature will try her on. Um, in Wisconsin, she will then be suspended from her if position. the lower house impeaches, which only requires a simple majority, that affects an automatic suspension. I, I think she probably still gets paid, but I, I haven't triple checked that. But she wouldn't be eligible to to sit on cases while that impeachment by the lower house hangs over her head. Now, if she were removed from office, the Democratic governor would be able to appoint someone to take her place, and might even be allowed to pick her well that's if she weren't disqualified does impeachment and conviction in wisconsin automatically affect disqualification no it can 
but it doesn't. The The wording of the Wisconsin Constitution says judgment, in, it's very similar to the federal wording, judgment in cases of impeachment shall not extend further than to removal from office or removal from office and disqualification to hold any blah, 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 blah. Um, so, so that- And, and Andy, hang on just on that. There's a nice question. There's actually an end note in my 2005 book, America's Constitution, a biography, saying, does the disqualification vote above and beyond the conviction vote, which automatically affects removal, does the disqualification vote require two-thirds? And in the U.S., practice actually requires only a simple majority vote, but in the an end notes to America's Constitutional Biography, I said, gee, I think there's a good argument that that should require two-thirds. And this is really important because the Republican Party in Wisconsin just barely has two-thirds. And if they have to vote just once to convict, that's one thing. But if they have to vote a second time, not just to convict, but to now to um, and therefore remove, but to, to disqualify, you know, that's that's then another hard vote as to which they have no margin for error. They have to uh, fill it inside straight and get every Republican, assuming that the Democrats aren't going to be uh, supporting them. No Democrat. This is footnote 52 at page 567 of chapter five of my book, America's Constitution. It came out in 2005. Here's what I wrote way back when. The U.S. Constitution did not explicitly specify whether disqualification would require two-thirds vote or a simple majority. Twice in American history, the Senate has imposed disqualification, each time by a simple majority vote, after two third, a two-thirds vote to convict. Thoughtful commentators have raised serious questions about this practice. See Michael Gerhardt's impeachment. He wrote a book, uh, pages 77 to 79. Our audience will, of course, know that Michael Gerhardt has been a, a guest on this podcast. We, I cite serious people. We bring serious people on the podcast. Michael has raised a serious question whether disqualification should require its own separate two-thirds vote. I think it should. That was the position I took way back when. This is not now special pleading for Justice P or anything like that. That That's my longstanding position. Okay, so we're going to take a break for a moment and provide information for our listeners who are hoping to gain continuing legal education credit for listening to this podcast. Once again, we're in partnership with the New Jersey State Bar Association on this. So to gain your credit, and of course... You can get it not only if you're a member of the bar in New Jersey, but also Pennsylvania and New York through the New Jersey State Bar Association, and then pretty much every other state in the union through reciprocity, which you need to check with your local state bar on that. Okay, so the procedure is that you go to podcast.njsba.com and you enter some information, then you'll be asked for the code. And the code for this episode is Chicago. It's not case sensitive. And once you've entered your code and completed the form, you're all set to go. Thank you again to the New Jersey State Bar Association for partnering with us on this. So the governor will be able to appoint someone to replace her if she's removed from office. And it's not subject to confirmation by the by the legislature. So it's not clear exactly what uh, they would. But then there would be an election, a retention election or something, and the electorate will wait. 
Why are these details important? Because the election of the governor of a justice of a justice appointed by a governor is statewide one person, one vote. And it's a slightly blue state that way, maybe. But see Ron Johnson, Manvela Barnes. If, for example, she were um, impeached and therefore temporarily suspended. Suppose she were convicted and ousted, but not disqualified. And he appoint and the governor appointed her again. This would be a referendum of the people on what the legislature had just done. That would be interesting and edgy. Now, suppose they tried to impeach her a second time before even this election. He could maybe keep, you know, re, um, reappointing her or something. It'd be very interesting. You know, who blinks first? But. Being elected one person, one vote statewide is very different than how the districts are structured. The districts give the Republicans a huge advantage. College gerrymandering, college geographic clustering. One person, one vote statewide is a very different way of aggregating the, the votes. Yeah, I mean, you'd have to think that there's some likelihood that the that if the retention election were in 2024, that that would not work to the Republicans' advantage. Um, because, you know, you, you have someone that um, elected by the people who fully knew that she was expressing her opinion about right. this during the election. So there's not anything new here. Um, mm-hmm. And and then, you know, they throw her and, out and before she can that, ever that, hear that, a that, case. That the, uh, the, the legislature is, in effect, disfranchising them of the search, which is how some people are going to feel, you see, if if Trump is disqualified. And, and that's what we talked about with, with Mike and Will. So similar issues. We're talking about disqualification well, here. Yeah, they're, it, Not the same, but similar. Yeah, not the same in the sense that I think this is, uh, you know, pretty illegitimate in terms of, of throwing her out. Now, hold on. They said on presidential disqualification, it's not a choice. Right. They said the text says what it says. Um, and impeachment, it's very different from that. It's right. a double choice. It's a choice to impeach to begin with, and then a second choice to disqualify, which isn't required and maybe even requires two thirds. And you and I have identified a third thing that she hasn't done anything wrong. Mm-hmm. Okay. We don't think. Um, so those are some obvious, obvious distinctions. But just taking a big step back, just politically, ordinary people in Wisconsin might be really wild, riled up saying, Who do you guys think you are? We knew who she was. We voted for her, and you're disqualifying her for something that we approved, and there's nothing wrong with it. Right. There's they're, right. They're, they're disqualifying. Disqual- they would be disqualifying her for behavior that the that the electorate you know perfectly knew about and wasn't illegal. You know, right. in any in any way. So okay. Right. On top of that, though, if you want to talk about illegitimate, the threat is that they would impeach her and then not hold a trial. Because if if she were you know in, impeached, that is you know the the uh, state lower the, house yeah the lower house I don't know what it's called in Wisconsin the, if the lower house impeaches her and the Senate doesn't hold the trial in Wisconsin she would not be able to uh, practice she would not be able to, to to fulfill the duties of her office while this was pending. Um, right, sort of and then like we do three, and three, and then all sorts of fun game theoretical things. Do the three justices on her side start to kind of act up in various ways in other cases and as protests, like go on strike in certain ways? Does she, at a certain point, I think she probably is going to get paid even if she can't sit on cases, but does she at a certain point call their bluff and actually step down? In which case, Evers either appoints someone like her or to be really edgy, 
you know, back to our hypothetical, appoints her, you know, to succeed her, herself after her resignation. So those are the, all the game theoretic possibilities. Stay tuned. Well, you could, I could also see uh, a situation where one of the Republican justices is outraged by this and, and you know, maybe takes a leave of absence or something like that to try to, you know, frustrate the, the you know, inappropriate actions of the legislature. So that would be very interesting. Um, that would be in a Jimmy Stewart, Frank Capra movie. I'm not sure we are in America today there where any Republican might do that. But you could imagine they might in that ask not send not for whom the the bell tolls. It tolls for the, right. this is about judicial independence and what goes around comes around. And this could happen to one of them. So, Andy, it's a brilliant possibility. I, as I said, it's somewhat analogous to what in the old days was a much more common practice of Senate pairing one senator from one side of the aisle pairing with another. One of them has to be out of town for a wedding or because of an appendix operation or something and has a standing agreement with another senator that if either of us is indisposed, both of us will decline to vote. What would have been our opposing votes kind of cancel out, but, but we're each giving each other an insurance policy. If something happens to me, you'll actually cover me and, and I'll do the same for you. And that works to both of our benefits because it enables us to go to weddings or to get hospital treatment or something. And our voters aren't going to be angry at us because actually you can say it's to wash. Right. You know, especially I think if the legislature engaged in this practice of impeaching her and then not holding the trial, I think that's something where a just a justice on the other side might get you know, pretty riled up about that and try to sure. try to make sure. But, but then the intermediate thing is, oh, they, they're not not holding a trial. They just do things slowly in, in, in Wisconsin. They slow, slow walk it, right. you know, and and I don't know about the upper house in Wisconsin. I do know that in Washington, D.C., the upper house knows 50 different ways of slow walking stuff. Mm-hmm. Right. But I think it would it would speak for itself. You know, OK. There would be political pressure. People would be outraged. Okay, well, so that's Wisconsin. Very interesting. A lot there. And now let's make quick work of Justice Alito here so we can get to uh, Michael Mukasey and his article. Quick work because it's easy and I'm on his side. Okay, so your your belief is that this is not grounds for, for recusal. Let's walk through once again. Did Justice Alito, and full disclosure here, our audience needs to know, I consider Sam Alito a friend. And and I think vice versa. And I hold him in high regard as a lawyer and as a human being. I think he's an ethical person. Unless you give me evidence, I'm going to give him every benefit of the doubt because I actually know the person. I would say also that you're you're quite capable of disagreeing with him as you did in a, uh, uh, well, in an episode yeah. that we have recorded but not yet aired, um, about which you, you'll hear shortly. Um, yes, about, uh, yes, you're going to hear all of that. I'm not just a lapdog. Further full disclosure, this is about a case called Moore versus United States where I intend, along with my partner in crime, so to speak, and brother, Vic Amar, to file an amicus brief. And it's a kind of liberal conservative issue. It's, it's about the scope of federal tax power. And I have a broad view of federal tax power. And, and some conservatives don't. In the preliminary briefing, a lot of conservatives of a certain sort have lined up on the other side. And I want Justice Alito, 
um, to be able to sit on this case if he so decides. Okay, and and he's a conservative, um, but. Let's just walk through. Those are all my disclosures. I know him. I like him. He likes me. I hold him in high regard. And that has not ever stopped me from being critical of him. On Moore versus Harper, the piece that Vic and I wrote uh, before in Supreme Court Review has some very tart criticisms of some things that Justice Alito had said in the shadow docket. All that said, let's just walk through. Is there anything wrong with giving an interview? Seems to me no. Well, since you've interviewed sitting Supreme Court justices, I assume that that you think it's okay for them to give an interview. Right. Thank you. Now, I don't practice law, um, but is there anything wrong with giving an interview to someone who is a member of the bar? You know, whether it's Ruth Marcus or Amy Howe, um, just to pick two people who have been on our podcast before, I would think and Nina's coming on, although she's not a member of the bar. There's nothing wrong with giving an interview. There's nothing wrong with giving an interview to someone who is a lawyer. Nothing wrong with giving an interview to someone who's a lawyer who brings a case before the United States Supreme Court. Now, if you discussed a case with a lawyer, that would be a basis of recusal because that's the kind of ex parte communication, especially if that discussion occurred without the rest of us being able to watch what actually happened, if it were behind closed doors, so to speak. But there's no reason to believe that that was the case. Justice Alito expressly has said we didn't talk about the Moore case or any other. Why do I mention the Moore case? This is not Moore, Harper, Moore versus Harper, but this text, because that's the case where this lawyer interviewer is now a lawyer. And that lawyer is on the other side of the case from my amicus brief, which Vic and I haven't written yet, but we plan to. OK, so I'm saying, look. I think the lawyer did nothing wrong. I think Justice Alito did nothing wrong in giving the interview. And I don't think there's any recusal obligation for reasons very similar to what I said about Justice P. You see, just repeat, the lawyer who did the interview is on the other side of the case from the amicus brief that I intend to file. And I'm hoping I'm going to get Justice Alito's vote. And you know why I I think I actually have a, a good chance of getting Alito's vote? Because I think my argument on the merits is clearly right. Not just right, but clearly right. And I think Sam Melito is one of the smartest justices on the court. And that's saying a lot because there are a lot of smart people on the court. And if you have a good argument, and I think I do, good legal argument, you want the smartest justices. Okay? Because on average, net-net, people you know who are... Good lawyers, smart lawyers are more likely to get it right. That's part of the, you know, the, the definition of what it means to be a really good and smart lawyer. And I think I have a really good chance of getting his vote because I think my argument is actually better on yeah. the merits, having nothing to do. And, and he doesn't have to accuse himself because we're friendly and we are you, you, in Washington, D.C. And lawyers are friendly with other lawyers. Oh, my gosh. You know, so Justice Leo actually wrote on the question of his recusal. And in the citations, or in the footnotes, rather, he has um, a number of examples. So he says, uh, Justice Sotomayor interviewed with a journalist for the New York Times did not recuse in a case where the Times was a party. Justice Breyer and Sotomayor interviewed with CBS News did not recuse in cases in which CBS News was a party. Um, and then Justice Gorsuch, Chief Justice Roberts. So... 
Ruth Bader Ginsburg, a bunch of these. So those are the same. precedents of a social. There are twofold precedents: precedents about shoot a practice of other justices giving interviews, but also precedents about recusal in actual cases that were decided by justices in which these folks didn't recuse. And and I actually hadn't read that full statement, but you see what a good lawyer Sam Alito is, because those sound to me like they're pretty good precedents. And we're going to hear when we switch over to Michael Mukasey, some precedents that are being invoked. They're not very good precedents, actually, for the proposition that Attorney General, former Attorney General Mukasey is invoking. It's a little different than, than the, here, because he's saying that uh, a journalist... Someone interviewed him that worked for a company, and then that company was a party to to a case. Here, he he's saying that this journalist interviewed him, and they're the lawyer, and they're the lawyer, right? Yeah, not the party. Right. They're a lawyer, not the party. So you know, it's different. I mean, the issue may be the same, yeah. but but it but it is it isn't exactly you know the same uh, situation. I leave and, it. And to, just so you know. Justices have ruled in cases where their brothers were the lawyer. Now, this is not current practice uh, today. Here's a list. This is from a 2012 book I wrote called America's Unwritten Constitution. This is from Chapter 1. Professor Sanford Levinson has provocatively identified a 19th century pattern in which Justice Brockhorst, Brockhorst Livingston participated, quote, in circuit court litigation involving the steam, but the New York steamboat monopoly, even though his brother, Robert Livingston was the holder of the monopoly in question, justice Levi Woodbury once heard on circuit, an important case in which a lawyer for one of the litigants was his son, Charles Woodbury. Chief justice Taney declined to recuse himself when his brother-in-law, Francis Scott key. Yes, that Francis Scott key argued before the court and David Dudley field, argued three of the most important cases involving national power over the defeated Confederacy before a court that included his brother, Stephen J. Field. Okay. Okay, so presumably this is these are cases where you think recusal would have been appropriate. I think so. I think modern standards would be stricter than um, back in the 19th century. Right. So just in case our audience thinks this guy's laid down, he thinks that, you know, justices can do whatever they want. No, don't do that today, please. Mm-hmm. And John Marshall, of course, you know, should have obviously recused himself in Marbury versus Madison. Mm-hmm. And we wouldn't have that opinion. <laughs> but of course, they, he might think that way, right? He might think like, yes. well, you know, I've got something important to say here. I'm not going to recuse myself, mm-hmm. which would be wrong. Um, okay, so let's get on then to, you know, to Mukasey. And I, I think one of the reasons I, I, I'm glad we put this off is that um, I don't like to do all Trump all the time. Um, but our audience loves it. <laughs> well, I think that, 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 you know, it's a love-hate relationship uh, with it. But uh, you can't, it's like a train wreck. You know, we don't like train wrecks, but we might watch them. Um, okay. The title was Trump an officer of the United States. He says no. From memory, I recite something. I, Donald J. Trump, to solemnly swear, many of you said Donald John Trump, to solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States and will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. Okay? So 
what are you talking about, uh, General Mukasey? The president took an oath to execute the office of president of the United States. So how can he not be an officer of the United States? And I'll read you just a couple of other passages of the Constitution. Article 2 says that the president shall hold his office for a four-year term. That's actually the first sentence of of Article 2. Let me just uh, read it. Um, And this is not from memory here. The second sentence of Article 2. He, that is the president, shall hold his office during the term of four years. Office. And the impeachment clause provides that the president shall be removed from office on impeachment and conviction. So what are you talking about? Well, is it really that simple? I mean, is it just that anyone that holds an office is an officer? Well, if it's not that simple, I want to hear a lot more about why it's not that simple. I mean, the op-ed surely doesn't come within 100 miles of explaining that. Now, it's just an op-ed, but wow, you'd think that's the obvious thing that you need to explain, and, and you need to tell the audience about those provisions of the Constitution, and I didn't see any of those really addressed in this little op-ed. Okay, now he makes an argument. So let's go through his arguments. First of all, he makes an argument based on precedent, right? He quotes a couple of cases. Right. Um, So I'll ask you to comment on these cases, and then I'll ask you whether there's maybe another case that's a better precedent. Yes. So first case is U.S. versus Muat from 1888. So what he says is that here's a quote that he gives us with some ellipsis in it from from that, that opinion, from the Supreme Court. Unless a person in the service of the government, dot, 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 holds his place by virtue of an appointment, dot, 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 he is not, strictly speaking, an officer of the United States. So there's that case. And then there's a, another case, Free Enterprise Fund versus Public Company Accounting Oversight Board from 2010, where Chief Justice Roberts says, quote, the people do not vote for, off, for the officers of the United States, unquote. Okay, so just on their face, it sounds like, you know, if you, the, the part that he's saying here says like, well, if you're not appointed, then you're not an officer. The Muat uh, um, language, and I'll talk about it first, and then I'll talk about the more recent case that what lawyers call the PCAOB case. First, I have to confess, I have never heard of that case. I would give you very good odds that almost no one that I know who teaches constitutional law has heard of this case because it's a nothing burger case. It's a case that's literally about whether some lower level bureaucrat type, actually I think within the Navy was owed or not $83.28. And the case has on its facts nothing whatsoever to do with the question of whether the president is an officer. It's about all sorts of subcategories of appointive officers and what they're entitled to and what not. So actually, the sentence that you quoted, here's the the full sentence without the ellipses. Unless a person in the service of the government therefore holds his place by virtue of an appointment by the president or of one of the courts of justice or heads of departments authorized by law 
to make such an appointment, he is not, strictly speaking, an officer of the United States. Now, that sounds really good unless you realize they're not talking at all about the president and whether the president's in office because no one's remotely challenging that issue or teeing it up. But all that sentence is, is a paraphrase of the following language of the Constitution itself, which I remind you elsewhere talks about executing the office of president of the United States and holding the office of president for four year terms and and being removable from office. Presidents being removed from office. Okay, so the Constitution of the United States says office, office, office. But here's what it says in the passage that is being paraphrased by this uh, nothing burger case that no one's ever heard of before. He, that is the president, this is Article 2, Section 2, Paragraph 2, you know, two balls, two strikes, two on, two out, two, two, two. I I used to love that when listening to baseball, when it's two balls, two strikes, two on, two out. Okay, two, two, two. He, that is the president, shall nominate and by and with the advice and consent of the Senate shall appoint ambassadors, other public ministers and consuls, judges of the Supreme Court, and all other officers in the States whose appointments are not herein otherwise provided for and which shall be established by law. But the Congress may by law vest the appointments of such inferior officers as they think proper in the present alone, in the course of law, in the heads of departments, and none of that That's the quote. And none of that, Andy, is remotely about whether the president is himself, herself, an officer for other purposes. Well, let me me go even further on that, okay? Because the sentence before that, in the opinion, says, what is necessary to constitute a person an officer of the United States in any of the various branches of its service has been very fully considered by this court in the United States versus Germain. And then after that sentence, it says, we do not see any reason to review this well-established definition of what it is that constitutes. So in other words, they're not actually inquiring into this at all. They're merely quoting from the case of the United States versus Germain. And and, and, and any first-year law student, and I say that because I remember being a first-year law student, I once took a sentence, and it was a great sentence, but it just completely wrenched it from context, and the case wasn't remotely about that sentence. Any lawyer can do this. Do you know how many opinions there are in the United States Supreme Court that say something about the Constitution? You can find all sorts of sentences and just cut and paste them together. A kid in Sunday school was once asked to quote two sentences from the Bible, and here's what he said. He said, Judas went and hanged himself. Go thou and do likewise. Okay. So, so, you know, you can string stuff together, but this was, that was an embarrassing citation to a case that's decided nothing and has nothing to do with whether the president is actually covered by various provisions that in one way or another refer to officers in the United States or the cognates of the phrase officers in the United States in some way, shape or form. Someone who holds office in the United States or holds office under the authority of the United States or whatever. OK, so that case has nothing to do with anything. Right. And, and it's it, it, it's it's an embarrassment. And the United States versus Germain for just for your information, the case that they're referencing is is only about determining whether a civil surgeon is an officer within the meaning of Article of sec, Article 2, Section 2. 
So, it, it, which is all about appointments. Those right, are, you know, exactly. so, so yes, that's a subject, you know, so it's, it's just not remotely about any of this stuff. And it says it's prescribing by whom officers of the United States shall be appointed. So this clearly has, is r- ridiculous, you know, frankly, I mean, I'm, I, I, I'm as a layman, I'm saying, obviously, I, I shouldn't be. Uh, and but. as, as a law professor, I'm agreeing with you. This was, this was not ex general Mukasey's finest moment okay well what about the other case that he that he quotes this this is a a, a bigger case although not it is it's the pcaob case it's discussed in great detail in my 2012 book america's unwritten constitution i i I think the case is rightly decided i love it it's an opinion by the chief justice of the united states the sitting chief justice john roberts let's roll the tape again what's the quote andy the people do not vote for the officers of the United States. Okay. The people do not vote for the, quote, officers of the United States, unquote. Now, of course, this is the same man who very famously administers oaths of office to Barack Obama twice. Um, and there was a slight awkwardness in, that, in, in the first oath administration and to Donald Trump. And I already read you the language of that oath of office that Obama twice and and Trump once actually swore to execute the office of president of the United States. So, So, of course, this opinion isn't talking about any of that. And John Roberts knows that for certain purposes, there's obviously a very compelling argument that presidents are officers. He's just not talking about any of that at all in this opinion. This opinion is all about lower bureaucrats within the federal bureaucracy. That's what the opinion's about. It's not remotely about whether the president is, for certain purposes, an officer of the United States or a cognate thereof. I want to say, but there is, Andy. Only one case that I know of that actually talks about this issue. It's not a Supreme Court case. It's an opinion by a a district judge, a very distinguished district judge, who goes out of his way to address the argument that that Mukasey is, in fact, relying on by especially a scholar named Seth Barrett Tillman and his sometime co-author, Josh Blackman, that the president of the United States isn't an officer for certain purposes. This was litigation several years ago about the emoluments clause of the Constitution. Let me read you the emoluments clause and tell you about what Seth Barrett Tillman and Blackman said. They filed an amicus brief. And this judge went out of his way to body slam the argument, spent five pages or so mocking the, th- the argument. And it's the only case that I know of, you see, on this. But here's the emoluments clause of the Constitution. When I don't want to get sucked into all the de- details, but here's the language. No person holding any office of profit or trust under the United States shall, without the consent of the Congress, accept of any present emolument, office, or title of any kind whatsoever, whatever, from any king, prince, or foreign state. So without Congress's permission, if you're an officer of the United States, you can't take all these foreign gifts without Congress's permission. And the Tillman-Blackman position, which I think is daft, is... Oh, that's a provision that applies to the Secretary of State. 
can't take a, a present from the emir of Kuwait or the king of France or something like that. Applies to the secretary of state, applies to the secretary of defense, applies to every ambassador. OK, but somehow doesn't apply to the president himself. I mean, just think about that for a second. Really? That's your position. It's perfectly OK, you know, to have some possible bribe from a foreign government as long as you, they bribe the, the headman rather than than someone else. So you, but that was the position that was uh, articulated by an amicus brief in a case in 2018, the case, Andy, is called District of Columbia and the State of Maryland v. Donald J. Trump. And there was an amicus brief filed by Professors uh, Tillman and Blackman. And here's what the judge, and I, I may be mangling his name a bit, and I apologize, Judge Peter Mesit, M-E-S-S-I-T-T-E, writes about that. And again, he goes out of his way. To address it, although the president himself does not make the argument, this argument was so bad, you know, that even Donald Trump's lawyers couldn't with a straight face make the argument. I mean, I'm telling you something pretty interesting, just even saying that. Oh, and by the way, the date of the this opinion, Andy, was, I think, July of 2018. Yeah, that's right. Okay, so back in July 2018, this very distinguished judge discusses the issue. Although the president himself does not make the argument as a preliminary matter, one of the amici curiae suggests that the president is not covered by the foreign emoluments clause at all because he has an elective office. And actually, this one was just a brief by Tillman. Maybe Blackman wasn't involved in this brief, but uh, see brief for scholar Seth Barrett Tillman. Okay. Now, he goes out of his way for five pages, says the judge, to reject this argument. At one point, he refers to it as absurd. He said, reading the phrase, office of profit or trust in the United States, to exclude the president would lead to an absurd, an essentially absurd result. And then he cites various scholars, including actually Lawrence Tribe, among others, and Andy, someone who is well known to this podcast audience, the great Sai Prakash. We bring onto this podcast the real expert. And Prakash is, has eminent conservative credentials, clerked for Clarence Thomas. Here's what the judge cites. As one historical scholar has noted, when the totality of founding era evidence is considered, Quote, an avalanche buries Tillman's fanciful claims, citing Prakash. And then he cites the Federalist Papers that refer to the president as the occupier of an office, several Federalist Papers, and George Washington himself, who referred to the office of the president. Now, if Tillman is right, then the Federalist Papers don't know what they're talking about. Hamilton doesn't know what he's talking about. George Washington doesn't know what he's talking about. James Madison doesn't know what he's talking about. Prakash doesn't. Amar doesn't. The essay is uh, entitled, it's by Sai Prakash. We'll put it up uh, on the site if we can. Why the Incompatibility Clause Applies to the Office of the President. Now, this was written in 2009. I just want to identify uh, two or three things. One, it wasn't written about Trump. Two, it's absolutely on point. It's about the president, whereas these cases, the Morat case and the PCOB case, weren't even on that. But this is scholarship on this issue, on the status of the president, way before Trump. 
by an eminent scholar, Sai Prakash, and is at the heart of the only opinion that I know that actually addresses this issue. It's admittedly a district court opinion, but that's the only one that even addresses and is addressing an argument that Donald Trump himself and his lawyers actually didn't have the chutzpah to make. You know, they discussed this uh, at some length in the uh, article um, that, you know, the the, um, Paulson and Bode article that we talked about over the last couple of weeks. They give a uh, a quote from the legislative from the legislative record um, uh, when the Fourteenth Amendment was being considered. Um, so I can just read that. Uh, Senator Johnson of Maryland. I'll read from the article here. Charged that the language employed was defective because the offices of president and vice president had inadvertently been omitted from Section Three. The amendment does not go far enough. Johnson averred. I do not see but that uh, any one of these gentlemen may be elected president or vice president. Why did you omit to exclude them? Johnson was complaining that these two officers should be included Section 3 and that they, were, they shouldn't be omitted. Senator Murill of Vermont interrupted, let me call the senator's attention to the words or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States. Senator Johnson promptly and somewhat sheepishly retreated. Perhaps I am wrong as to the exclusion from the presidency. No doubt I am. But I was misled by noting the special exclusion in the case of senators and representatives. You've read the Bode-Paulson piece with more care, and we didn't talk about this in our previous episodes because I actually didn't think it was worth the audience's time. I thought it was such a ridiculous point. They have me at hello. But just to remind people, and we're going to go, I'm going to say a little bit more just about, because this is all on the merits, but I'm going to say a little bit more on why these arguments are bad, but I'm going to say a little bit more about, well, if people disagree, whom do you trust? How do you decide? You know, if you don't want to spend hours and hours looking up all these things on your own, the way Andy, you um, do, but just to, to remind people, Will Bode clerked for Chief Justice John Roberts and is among the most distinguished scholars there is. He and Prakash are, he's the single most cited young scholar by the Supreme Court, is Will Bode, a Roberts clerk. Prakash is the most cited younger-ish scholar by the Supreme Court. I mean, he clerked for Thomas. These are very credible people, you see, who are really experts. Truthfully, that's less true of, of Professor Tillman, truth be told, who is not cited by the Supreme Court. And in, um, in the one case where a court really turns and discusses his work, body slams him. So the final argument that, uh, that we have here from um, General Mukasey is uh, a discussion of the fact that basically the president takes a different oath of office than do other officers. Um, and therefore, the, when they talk about the oath under the Constitution, they're referring, they're referring to or this other oath and not the presidential oath. That the presidential oath that would be somehow, well, here, let me read what he says. He says, the presidential oath is separately provided for at the end of Article 2, Section 1, which would be superfluous if the president's oath were required by the general language in Article 6. Mr. Trump took an oath as president pursuant to Article 2, not as an officer pursuant to Article 6, because the insurrection clause applies only to those who have taken an oath as an officer of the United States. He can't be barred by that clause from serving in any capacity. Let me be clear. 
This is a genuinely stupid argument on the merits. I'm going to demolish it. It's embarrassing that someone so distinguished at the end of, you know, near the end of their career would say something like this in so prominent a place. So I'll identify all the reasons this is genuinely stupid. So first, I already gave you language that the president in that very oath, ex-General Mukasey, actually says execute the office of president of the United States. And they hold office for four years and they're removable from office by impeachment. So that's one point. Second, no, it wouldn't be superfluous, strictly speaking. There's a general oath that everyone has to take under Article 6, but they specify the presidential oath because they actually give you this precise words of that oath. And so that's not superfluous. That's actually adding specificity. So that's the second point. Third point, it is simply wrong as a matter of constitutional law that there are no superfluous belt and suspender clauses in the Constitution. Now I say this as a scholar, General Mukasey, who has written an article on just this topic. We should put it up, and it's on constitutional redundancies and clarifying clauses. It's my Seeger's essay, a lecture in jurisprudence. I gave it 20 years ago. And I say, actually, not so good. Actually, amateurs say all the time, oh, that can't be right because then this provision would be superfluous. And I say, actually, the Constitution contains clauses that just add emphasis. The Necessary Proper Clause, John Marshall says in McCulloch versus Maryland, may very well be superfluous. He says that explicitly in McCulloch versus Maryland. The Tenth Amendment maybe doesn't add anything other than emphasis. It's a government of limited and enumerated powers, even without the Tenth Amendment. We've talked about how even if it didn't say confrontation, or compulsory process or counsel. If it didn't have any one of those, that might simply have been an obvious application under the more general due process clause. It's about fair procedures. So there is no super strong that can't be right because otherwise the clause would be superfluous. There's no such proposition. I say as someone who has done a lot of constitutional law, hundreds of issues that I thought about over the years, even if there were such a super strong provision, the oath clause of the, pre- the presidential oath clause adds some real specificity of, above and blo- beyond the general oath clause of, of Article 6. And finally, the oath, the presidential oath itself actually says office of, of president of the United States. Oh, my gosh. Now, take a step back from all those little technical teeny points. Big picture. Are you on drugs? So so somehow we if if you have taken an oath to the Constitution and you're some minor official, you're disqualified. But if you've taken an oath to the Constitution under Article 2, you know, we don't worry about that? Oh, my God. Contrarywise, oh, you've taken an oath, and you've led an insurrection, or you've participated in it, and you're ineligible to be some minor official, you know, a cabin officer, you know, a, assistant federal dog catcher in D.C., but you can be president of the United States. What are you talking about? And now you see why this is relevant to that federal district judge opinion that I was saying. This is absurd. It's on the emoluments clause, oh, you can all these pres- presents from some a foreign king or emir or sultan or, or tsar. If you're president, um, that's OK, but you can't accept anything if, if you're merely secretary of state or ambassador. Textually, it's wrong. But structurally, as a matter of basic common sense, this is very wrong. It's silly. 
It's so silly that we didn't spend time on it in three hours with Bode and Paulson because I moved beyond it because it seemed to me they were just pushing on an open door. It's so silly that Trump's lawyers themselves didn't even argue that in the emoluments case. And now I'm going to talk about just more generally how our audiences say, well, you got Mukasey on one side, you got, you know, some other people on the other side. Who's who's to say? I'll, I'll give you a, a couple of little guidelines, um, shortcuts, heuristic. So Larry tried has tweeted out that um, recently that he thinks this is absurd. If you put a gun to my head and say, you have to pick between Tribe and Mukasey, just not on the merits, but just who do I pick? trust, I would say, why well, trust Larry Tribe more? Because he's a scholar. This is what he's done for his entire life. He's written many books on the Constitution. I have pretty good reason to think that he speaks for himself. Truthfully, this is not true of all great lawyers and judges who aren't scholars. They have sometimes underlings write stuff for them. Judges have law clerks. Lawyers have associates. Great lawyers have staff attorneys who who do this. So it's possible that General Mukasey did all this himself, but it's possible it's some underling and he offered his name. He's still responsible for it. But when a scholar says something, typically that scholar did it himself, herself, is responsible for it. And especially if that scholar is building on a lifetime of scholarship on, let's say, the Constitution, in general, I'm going to give more benefit of the doubt to the scholar. And I have two scholars like Sai Prakash and Will Bode and Mike Paulson and Larry Tribe. On the one side, Akhil and Vic have taken this position back in 1996 in an article on a presidential succession. And on the other side, we do have a scholar, Seth Barrett Tillman. He has a track record of citation or non-citation. You can judge it for yourself. I don't think it's a very distinguished record, truthfully. And and you have General Mukasey, but I think this is not his finest hour. So I think, you know, when, would you say that it's likely, you know, he, he cited these cases or, you know, he didn't cite them, but he, he called attention to these cases. Um, is that something that a scholar would not do because well the problem is you can't prove this in a 500 word op-ed you'd have to confront all the contrary evidence but even in this 500 words he wasted his space on citations that are less than nothing that have nothing to do with the issue he didn't come close to addressing the things that we have on this podcast like that district court opinion or the relevant words the constitution they keep invoking even the language of the presidential oath which says office of the united states i will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. It's very difficult to do anything in a short op-ed. But what I'm saying is he's written no article that I know of in which he elaborates all this. I know where it's coming from. It's coming from Seth Barrett Tillman, which has been properly body slammed by Sai Prakash and judges and Bode and Paulson. So, and Tribe himself was involved in that emoluments clause litigation on the other side. Um, and I hold I don't always agree with Larry Tribe. I don't always agree with with Sai Prakash or Will Bode. Our audience has heard that. But these are the serious people. That's why these are the serious people that you've heard from on our podcast. OK, well, so as you can see, there there wouldn't have been enough time to go through the entirety of the the issues regarding uh, President Trump and whether and insurrection and rebellion and aid or comfort, et cetera. You've just called attention to some ridiculous arguments, I think, that you're able to dismiss out of hand. It's probably a closer call on some of the matters regarding insurrection, rebellion, as they apply to Trump. And so it's important to for us to go through and identify the sorts of things that it might turn on. 
Um, yes, I'm, th- those are close questions our audience will hear. And I haven't truthfully fully made up my mind about all those questions, which is why I was urging Paulson and Bo to write a second piece on lower bound of insurrection, what engage actually means, what aid and comfort means, and can those be satisfied by inaction or do they require affirmative actions of certain sorts? Those to me seem to be genuinely interesting and close questions as to which thoughtful people who are knowledgeable can disagree. This one seems to me that the idea that the president simply is not covered by the relevant provisions of article uh, of the 14th Amendment, that, that seems to me daft. Okay, so we'll be back next week with another episode of Four Things in the News, one way or the other, uh, and how they apply to the constitutional ecosphere. So thank you very much. Thanks, Andy.